Hi, and welcome to the CarMed Rebels podcast. I'm Jenny Field. I'm Advita Patel. I'm Trudy Lewis. So this week in the news, I thought that one of the things we could look at is the Facebook issue and the whistleblower. So it's in the press today and recently has been this whistleblower in the US who has talked about internal practices and how it's impacted or how Facebook is quite a negative entity because it attacks the democracy of people and it also attacks people's mental health especially children. Basically, one of the things in the report that I read, and this was from the BBC, was how she got this information from the fact that there was some internal research that came about that was done that actually exposed some of the poor practices or some of the negative things that comes from Facebook and other social media platforms, to which I think it's reported that Mark Zuckerberg said that exposing that encouraged other companies to not embark on internal research because of the negative impacts that will come from it. So basically, if something negative comes out of the research, they will be less likely to expose that. Now, the challenge back to him was, well, expose all the data so that we can have a look at it and then we can make our judgments for ourselves. But it just sparked my attention because we have spoken about data a lot across all of the things that we talk about. And we do consider insights and data as a very important thing for us to review and look at when we're talking to companies about their problems, especially as it relates to communications. So I just thought how interesting a statement that he suddenly says, and it could be just a defensive thing where he's saying, actually, you know, don't out me because suddenly other companies are going to get impacted negatively by this. What do you guys think? I know I don't know if you've read the story, but I know you're aware of it. So what do you all think? I should declare for the news this week that I am in a hotel lobby, so it might be a little bit noisy in my background. The joys of being back out and about. <laughs> I haven't read much of the detail of the story, but I think it's a very interesting insight into probably that individual's behaviour. But I wonder how that would translate for other leaders and other organisations and how they feel. And I think you can't kind of assume that that's the voice of all leaders across different organisations, because I don't think that's the case. But I think the fear generally for leaders in organisations about listening to people and having feedback is real, regardless Mm. of of impact or, or anything. I think over the years, all the work I've certainly done with any leader that I work with when I worked in an organisation and as a consultant, there's always that apprehension of hearing from people and listening and and I think that will exist forever. I mean, to be fair, most of my stuff this week has been dealing with people having conspiracy theories on the outage <laughs> of Facebook and WhatsApp, but that's a whole other topic. Edvita, yeah. what do you think? Uh, it's an interesting one, actually. I completely understand what this person is saying, the whistleblower in terms of, you know, the social media platform harming children and damaging people's mental health, but it's not new, right? It's not new. Like we've known this for a long time. It's been going on since Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and Twitter and Facebook. It's not only down to that particular social media platform. I understand that she's saying that they've hidden the data and they're not being truthful in what they're seeing and and understanding. But I also think there's an element, and we've said this before, but I also think there's an element on the owner should also be on us as, as general public to be aware of the damage that these things can cause us and cost us. 
And it's obvious that someone like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, is a multi-billionaire. It's a profit thing for him, right? We all think he should be a little bit more considerate and, well, more considerate than what he is. But he will always push back against those kind of claims. That's just, you know, like you just said, Jenny, leaders will always have that kind of, like, how do you know what you're doing? And also, on the second point of this person is whistleblow. The thing with whistleblowers, and I completely, you know, I do agree with the kind of going out and speaking up and being confident in doing that and, and speaking about the organisation. But we also need to be mindful about the access point this individual had, like how much of what they are sharing exactly true and if you read the statement from the director of cons and policy at facebook they've made a statement that says that this individual was a product manager they didn't have any direct reports they weren't involved in c-suite discussions they weren't involved in any kind of decision making forums they weren't privileged to have access to information she was just an employee who was there to do product management so how on earth does she know that we haven't considered this or this is what's happening and they've made assumptions about what our practice is without the information and the knowledge behind it and it's gone to this kind of level and I get it I understand why they've had to go out there because she's obviously had access to some privileged information but I also think when you go out whistleblowing you need to be fairly confident that you've got the information and and the data behind you to back up your theory and this person according to the reports has admitted she didn't have access to this information and she wasn't involved in C-suite discussions that she's never been involved in some of those kind of core meetings Mm -hmm. but this is just from her experience of working at Facebook and that's okay you're allowed to have your opinion but it has kind of I suppose opened up this massive can of worms for Facebook and I can see why Mark Zuckerberg would turn around and say I don't think we should do a kind of internal research now because you know we're going to damage other businesses I don't agree with it but I can see why he I said that. Yeah, I, I mean, his thing was about the potential of information being leaked would then cause leaders to feel as if to say, do you know what, we're not going to do internal research because we're afraid of things being leaked. And as you said, you know, she's taken reports that she had access to and that's limited and then passed that on to the media, passed that on to various media outlets, which is then escalated to where it is at the moment. Personally, I think... It's an interesting one for me because on the one hand, I've seen where some leaders have been a bit reluctant to share clear results on stuff, but that's their right as leaders. You know, there are some things that you do need to keep private and that doesn't necessarily need to be shared. And then on the other hand, I don't see where it would actually stop others from saying, you know what, we need to do internal research. I think he's just using that as a defence mechanism within the argument that's being confronted to him. Because as you said, Advita, you know, yes, she's only had limited contact to this information. But from his side, this has clearly rattled him. This is clearly kind of hit home. Yeah, because it's identified where the failures are within the organisation and what leader wants that to be public knowledge. Nobody does, right? So you panic, like Jenny said, and you go back. And I think as communication practitioners and PR practitioners and business owners, we do have a sense of responsibility to make sure that we are being ethical with the work that we're doing. And I think we all know with everything that's gone with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and, and some of the, you know, poor practices they have put in place in the past, he is very sensitive, I would imagine. Not knowing the bloke, obviously, he's not my best mate. <laughs> we don't go for dinner together. I don't know him either. <laughs> Making massive assumptions about Mark Zuckerberg. But I'm assuming that he's been burnt before and he has had a really negative impression of him in the press, right? And I do think he is going to be more sensitive and more wary of these things. So his knee-jerk reaction, I would say, is 
I'm not doing it then. Like, what's the point if I if my employees mm-hmm. are going to go and share this confidential information externally? Then we're not protecting ourselves, and I can see that. But this all, I think, comes back to the the culture, how psychologically safe people feel. Like yeah. it, it throws up bigger questions for me. And I think if someone leaks something and whistleblows and all those things, then you know, have they tried other avenues? Have they tried other yeah. conversations? And in my experience, that's not always the case. They are sometimes just people that want to have have their own agenda and doing that does that. And I'm not saying this is the case here, but in experience that I have had, it's been a personal agenda that's led to some of those behaviours. And I think we could speculate till the cows come home, as they say, <laughs> um, because we don't we don't know what was done internally. We don't know what was said. But I think there's a bigger question that if I was advising Mark or Facebook or the people there would be to just think about how it got to this point. You know, how has this happened? How has this symptom happened and what was the root cause of that and then let's look at at how we kind of got here because I think if you don't look at that you're not going to address any of the stuff that's going on yeah and you know if there's trust and transparency and all those kind of issues going on you've got to delve underneath those a bit really yeah definitely I was just gonna say Mark Zuckerberg and team do you want to get in touch with Calmage Rebels you can find us (laughs) we're really happy to help help (laughs) yeah get in touch get in touch Oh, that's great. So I hope you all enjoyed our little chat, (laughs) very opinionated chat, maybe, and enjoy our next episode, which is how ham and cheese baguette can help you listen. We're just going to leave that there. Yeah, I'm not even going to bother to explain that. We're just going to let you have that episode. Thanks. If you want to find out more about how you can work with us, you can visit our website, which is calmedgedrebels.com. Here you can find out more about each of us individually, and it will also give you links to our own websites, which are colinear.co for Trudy, commsrebel.com for Advita, and Redefining Comms for me, Jenny. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at calmedgedrebels, and you can also follow us individually on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So if you do want to work with us around communications, consulting, coaching or workshops, please do get in touch. So today I wanted us to talk about listening, which sounds like, oh, my God, not this again. But I've been reading quite a lot about listening recently because As a coach, and I know Trudy will know this with the training that we've done, we get taught how to listen actively and what the difference is between just general listening and what active listening. And most folks, I think, who work in the communications or HR field and generally business would have had some sort of training or read upon this anyway. But what's really interesting for me is how listening has reduced, I would say, since we've kind of gone digital. And my concern and what I wanted us to talk about today is how do we make sure with this hybrid working that's now coming out with everybody? You know, we're going to have people in the physical space. We're going to have people tuning in online. We're going to have people ringing in through the phone. How as leaders can we make sure that we are listening, checking in with our bias and making sure that we are being inclusive as much as we possibly can? And I believe, and, you know, I don't want to kind of be biased towards both of you, but I do believe that listening plays a huge part in all of this because I was talking to a a colleague the other day actually somebody that I work with and they were saying that they first time ever they tried the hybrid working model so they had people on teams with the camera on and people physically in the room and they said it was really obvious that the chair of that meeting was being biased towards the people in the room 
even though they could physically see on because the, they invested in good tech, they could see people's faces on the big screen in the room. They still didn't really pay too much attention to the folks on the screen and weren't really listening. And when they did, they weren't really paying too much attention. And if the physical person in the room interrupted, they listened to them more than the person on the screen. And they were saying it was really, it became quite obvious and you could sense the frustration on those people who were dialing in. Uh, even though all the tech was there and all the resources were there, but still the behavior wasn't quite there. So I wanted us to kind of talk about, firstly, why listening, been speaking about this for a long time, but why is it so important? And, I, you know, not just in terms of I'm listening to what that person is saying, then I'm, I'm kind of come up with a response, but actually listening to what people are saying and what they're doing. And the other part of this conversation I'd like us to discuss is around the great resignation. So I've been reading a lot around the great resignation. A lot of organisations are struggling with retaining talent and retaining colleagues. I do think the pandemic has played a big part in this. I think people have re-evaluated their priorities and have made decisions based on what they want. And I do think that some organisations, and I am generalising here a little bit, but the ones I've cut the case studies I read, have failed to listen in advance. You know, so they haven't checked the information and the data that's been shared with them. And it's too late to convince people to stay or to change the behaviours that may have led those people to leave in the first place. So it's a really big question. I don't know, like all our podcast episodes, it could go <laughs> anywhere. But I really want us to kind of dig a bit deeper in this area of work. And I know there's a few folks who have done a lot of research in this space. Dr. Kevin Rook being one of them. I know he's done a research paper on there. And we'll share, as usual, links to anything that we discussed today. People can check it out. But I'm going to go to Jenny first to get your thoughts. Jenny, what are your thoughts on this whole listening? Such a, such a big question. <laughs> of thoughts and then you went and I also want to talk about the great resignation I was like (laughs) throw another big one in there shall we so I think the listening thing is really important I talk so much about actively listening in my book and when I do the field model with clients because you have to be really paying attention I get a little bit frustrated by people saying oh you know this is the first time we've had to do this with people on screen and people in a room no it's not this isn't new I've passed a spider phone round a boardroom for many a year pre-COVID. You know, this to me isn't really that new. And I think we're trying to make it okay by saying it's new and we don't know what we're doing. Whereas actually, we've allowed bad behaviours in hybrid meetings for a number of years. And now people just aren't accepting of those anymore. And I think that's probably what the difference is. I do think it's a training issue. I think when I look at the conversations I'm having around helping people be more intentional or helping people have better conversations in meetings, running better meetings to make them more efficient. Some of that is just basic meeting etiquette that should apply regardless of whether you're all in a room or if you're partly on a screen. I think that the bias that comes from listening more to the person in the room, I think the word bias is a little bit loaded there for me. I think that's just human nature. There's a physical person in front of me, I'm going to listen to them more than I am someone that's maybe got their camera off on a screen. That's just how we're built as human beings. So I'm not sure it's a bias as such. I sort of question that there because I think it's more kind of human nature. And therefore, you have to be aware of that and make sure that you're giving everybody a voice. And if people aren't stepping forwards, you're bringing them forward. But I think that's just kind of how we're built. If someone's in front of me, I'm going to listen to them more than someone that's on the end of a phone. So that's some of my thinking on that bit. And then on the great resignation piece, I'm probably going to be a little bit controversial, (laughs) which I know is unusual, (laughs) because there is a part of me that thinks, 
like you said when you were sort of introducing this, that people have had time to reevaluate things that are important to them. And, and some of our values have changed and where we want to spend our time has, has shifted. And if an organization doesn't match that, then we will leave. And that's okay. I'm a bit worried that we're going to get really caught up in organizations trying to be all things to all people. And I know we've talked about this on previous episodes in previous seasons about culture and different things, but there is something about our values sometimes don't align with the organizations we work for. And that is why we leave. It is a relationship with that organization, with the people that are there. And like any relationship, it can come to an end if we're not happy. And that's okay. I think I worry that we're going to try and cling on to things and try and make things okay for everybody when that's not possible. And actually, by trying to do everything for everyone, you'll be nothing to anyone. And I think that's something that's really worth being mindful of. That said, your specific point around it was a failure to listen that has led to this is important to look at. And I find that really interesting when all through 2020, there were so many conversations about how many surveys were going out and how much people were listening. And I know from doing my own research into the role of line managers, there were several organisations that were saying, we can't take part because we've just done, you know, our 700th survey (laughs) and we can't possibly do another one. So I think there's something in there for me about how we listen. And, And I've always said surveys are not the only and certainly should never be used in isolation in order to listen. But I I think there's something in there about maybe more performative listening rather than stuff that's actually genuine. So they're my first little thoughts from your intro. Um, And before I ask Trudy to come in, I'm just going to do my little bugbear around surveys. It's never the tool that's a problem, in my opinion. (laughs) So this thing about server fatigue is nonsense. I'm sorry, but it is. Fatigue only happens when actions don't take place after the survey's happened, which is why people get frustrated. So as a colleague, you're not going to fill in the survey if you know it's a pointless task because, like you said, it's performative and it's not adding any value. So it is. I do get a little bit, you know, when you get that kind of, slight annoyance when people say they're busy (laughs) (laughs) I do I get that daily yeah I get that slight annoyance when people say oh we say fatigue we can't do any more surveys now it's fatigue Mm. so that's just a a side note (laughs) I feel like we could do a whole episode on those little things that annoy us oh yeah you know because I I think we've probably got a few between us (laughs) (laughs) Trudy what are your thoughts oh my goodness there's so much in that so far already I'm just wondering where to start. The whole listening piece is incredibly important and it really is important right now. And, you know, just dipping around in the various things that both of you have said, I think there is an issue with organizations not knowing what to do with data once they've collected it. So the survey is there, they've brought the material together, they've taken their staff through the survey process. And I think the big question for most of them is, what on earth do we do with this data now? How do we then use it to exercise change? And I think that's a really big issue with the whole kind of data set, you know, that you collect from people, which gives the perception then that you've been listening. And like you said, performative listening, you then haven't really listened because you don't know what, you haven't done anything with it. You hadn't thought about how you're going to mobilize, whether it's your line managers or your senior manager, senior team, how are you going to mobilize people to then execute some of the things that people have said? So there is this massive issue around surveys, what we do with them afterwards, how it then demonstrates that we have been listening or not. And the average person in the organization will say to you, just like Advita said, I'm tired of doing surveys and never seeing anything different. 
never seeing anything change. And so it has to be married with action. So there is a real issue there, I think. But I think some of the issue is around not knowing what to do with the data. And then listening again, the whole performative aspect of listening. I don't know why, but since the pandemic, there are lots of things that people are saying that perhaps it's more than just within the pandemic, but people say that it's too difficult. So it's too difficult for us to get our head around that we need to listen to people. Oh, it's really hard to engage people online. It is challenging. It's not impossible. And I think the challenge we do have is that if the organization is not willing to work at it and take the time, use different mechanisms, find ways to listen to people, then they're not going to be listened to and and we're not going to move any further forward, which means that you will always be producing a way of communicating and a way of connecting with people that does not actually connect with people. So people are like, we don't receive this. We're not receptive to it. We can't be receptive to it because this isn't really what resonates with us. So I I do think there's a real opportunity in a sense to relook at how we listen to each other how we address the whole thing of online and hybrid and whatever in a perhaps practical and human way to say, this is how we should be doing it simply because it's not going to change. It's not like we're suddenly, it's all going to suddenly go away. We have to do some of this. So as a result, let's intelligently look at this and have a real chat to people and really be curious and interested about what people have to say. And then kind of come up with the mechanism of how we're going to tackle it at the end. The whole thing about people leaving, it's like you've both said around, you know, people been away for a long time. And so they've had a chance to reevaluate their lives and what's important and all the rest of it. But there's also something about some people possibly really relished or enjoyed the fact that they didn't have to interact with anybody, you know, especially people who are perhaps introverts and so on. They're probably thinking, do you know what? I actually love the fact that I don't have to connect and deal with people. And so as a result, it's really easy to do it. If you're being, if you're then going to force those types of people back into the workforce, then they're going to resist and perhaps say, do you know what? That's not for me. Maybe I need to move on to another company. And there are loads of loads of reasons why people are leaving. There are lots of opportunity. People have had the time to think about their careers and their progression And so I guess from an organizational perspective, your biggest challenge is always going to be, how am I going to keep my talent? How am I going to keep the people who are really, really good at stuff? And I just, you know, I empathize with that because I think it must be really hard to work that through. But again, it comes right back to how am I listening to these very same people? How am I connecting and engaging with them? Am I really reaching them to the point where they are responding to what I'm saying, what I'm thinking? It can't be just, I've laid down a kind of command and control thing. You know, this is what we're doing. I don't think that works anymore. And I think for those that feel that they have to just be in that attitude of a bit of command and control may find that that's where people resist most and say, do you know what? I'm really not working with that anymore because for 18 months I've had to do things very differently. So it's a huge challenge, I think, but I think it's one that almost listening is the key to it. So you say to yourself, why would you not 
take the time to understand how best to listen to your people. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, everything you said resonates a lot. And, you know, I believe that is the foundation of success for that organisation. And I get Jenny's point before where you said, Jenny, that, you know, you can't be everything to everyone, you'll end up being nothing to anyone, which I completely agree with. I think that's true. I think as an organisation, you can't be everything to everybody. I completely understand that. But you do have to now understand that however you may have worked before, pre-COVID, before the hybrid stuff, everything. I know there's discussions around it was hybrid before anyway, but we're just making a bigger deal about it. I get that as well. But there is an element of, you know, we, we live in a world and we work in a world where there's lots of distraction around us all of the time. Even when you're in work, you know, before it used to be when open offices started to become like this thing, remember people were like, oh, I'm distracted, I'm can't hear this or I'll look over there and even on calls you know when you're on calls people are this is why I've got a thing by the way about cameras being off because you know it's easy to keep your camera off and multitask to do something else and you're not really paying too much attention to what's going on in the room which is why I say you know there are obviously challenges for some leaders to encourage their team to keep the cameras on and I always kind of say to folks, speak to people on a one-to-one basis and explain why it's important for them to be visible in that room so they can contribute effectively. Because it's really easy. You know, we've all done it. We've all had our cameras off in certain meetings where we've kind of answered our emails or texting people. And in our case, probably WhatsApping each other <laughs> to say, <laughs> what's going on here? But we have to be very intentional. And to Trudy's point, the curiosity and being curious. And I now have to put my phone on airplane mode if I'm doing anything, because I know how easy it is to pick it up and just scroll automatically, because it's just an easy thing to do. But I do think organisations need to be quite conscious and leaders within the organisation have to pay attention to not only what is being said, but what isn't being said in the room as well. And I think that's really important. I think that's often we don't do that. And I do think annual surveys sometimes is an excuse to kind of say, well, we are listening. We do a survey every year. But is that just a kind of, you know, like a tick box exercise to say that we ask these questions? I think in the research that Kevin Rook did with with Howard, I'll get I'll get the names properly. I'll get the names in a second, so I, I credit all of them. But in there, there was this percentage, I think it was 73% of the respondents said that they never did focus groups ever. So the only way they listened to their colleagues was through surveys, which is just shocking. Just, just what That's is shocking. A shocking, shocking. Not, that 73, that is a ridiculously high number because I always said this about employee engagement surveys I haven't done them in several organizations and I remember working in one organization where I got there and they said we stopped doing them because all of the issues people had were outside of our control based on the organization which I thought was quite a bold move I mean they then they had other mechanisms to listen so they did sort of change stuff which was good but I thought it was a bold move to say that there's no point in doing this because Everything that comes back is stuff that's outside of our control. Mm. But it just frustrates me that people are just using that because if I've had a rubbish journey into work and I've got to come in and do a survey, my whole attitude to everything is going to be way more negative in responding to that because of what's happened to me in in that morning. It's so subjective to the moment and so of the moment, which is why you have to do them regularly and and look for trends and not look at them in isolation. But 73% of... 77, 77. Oh, good. Even worse. 77%. And it's a research by Howard Craze, Mike Pounsford and Dr. Kevin Rook. And we'll share the link so you can see all the data and the stats behind it. But yeah, it's 77%. 
percent of respondents said that they rarely or never use focus groups a listening method where deep insights were often cited as benefits mm. this is the busy thing again isn't it this is i'm we're too busy to do it but if it was important enough for you to properly listen to take action and also in the work i do you know with the field model you have to have those conversations to diagnose the root cause otherwise you're just doing exactly what i've always said is that you're just spending money on campaigns and things to treat the symptoms not the root cause which would be a longer term solution and would actually solve the root cause of something rather than just a sticking plaster over the top. I mean, the amount of money people must be wasting on stuff that's not really doing anything must be phenomenal. Well, also, if you think about it, some of the reasons why an organisation might go the route of a survey in opposed to a focus group is because they don't genuinely want to know what people think. So Mm. I went... I did some focus groups with the company once and the people in the room said, and it it wasn't even a big issue. It was, you know, we needed staff opinion on something. And everybody who came into that room said, do you know what? This is the first time somebody's ever asked me this question. So I can believe that statistic. You know, it's the first time anybody's actually asked me what I think about this. Now, that's an organization that had surveys every single year, just like everybody else. I think they probably even had more. But the reality for them was that the people who worked there didn't actually feel as if they were listened to at all. So if we flip it and say, well, do you really want to know what your people are thinking? Do you really want to adjust the culture so that people are able to manage with hybrid? Do you really want to keep your people engaged so that they stay? Maybe you need to really listen to them. You know, maybe you need to put some of the mechanisms in, like focus groups, like other ways for people to speak upwards so that they're able to share what's on their on their minds. And then you can say to yourself, well, maybe there are some things we can't do because, again, we can't be all things to all people. But there are things that we can do. And just having that dialogue makes a huge difference because if a member of staff understands where you're coming from with with a certain issue and why you can't do something a certain way or why you're going through a change, if they understand, it makes a world of difference to how they react to it. Otherwise, they sit back and they, they will have the gossip mill, they will have their opinions, they will be resistant to change or resistant to whatever's going on. But the minute you engage them in a conversation, the minute you listen to them and allow them to have some dialogue, it just changes everything. So here's a question. What are your thoughts then on, so say there's some kind of change program taking place, right? And that is just, it is what it is. They've made a decision based on cost, for example, right? No amount of feedback is going to change that way of working. What do you say to those leaders and those communicators and HR folk and business, all those kind of, you know, people who are probably involved in that, that what's the point? What's the point of listening to what people have to say if we're not going to take their feedback on board, you know, and implement it? So what's what's the point of asking that question? Are we not just triggering them to get their views heard, but then we know that nothing is going to happen without feedback because this is just the way things are going to happen? How do, in your opinions, both of you, how do you manage that? Because I'm I'm, a, I'm making a massive assumption that people are going to be listening, going, well, it's all well and good saying listen, take advice, and get feedback, but what if my CEO and exec team are saying this is just the way it is? Yeah. And, you know, we're not going to change anything. And and that happens a lot, doesn't it? So in, in most change programs, if you're going through a merger and acquisition, sometimes there is absolutely nothing. You, I'm sure Jenny can tell us more about that because she's worked <laughs> on it. But literally, there's nothing much you can do to say, 
let's change the situation. But I do think that the fact that you put yourself in the position to listen means that you're open to dialogue. And within change, dialogue is perhaps the most important tool that you can have within the mix of dealing with the people that are going to experience the change. So if you think of it from some of the change programs where it hits organizational change, you've got the situation where people, whether you tell them something or not, will assume what's happening. They will then have conversations with each other. Trust me, those conversations that happen in boardrooms and and senior leadership team meetings They do leak out and people do hear bits of them. And unfortunately, people don't tend to hear the full story. So they'll hear a tiny little bit and then they'll all kind of speculate as to what that means. So the position you put yourself in as a leader, manager, when you say, I want to listen to what you have to say, is you then give yourself the opportunity to explain exactly what's happening. And you give the individuals the opportunity to explain how they're feeling about it and how they will receive it. If an individual understands why you're doing this or why this is happening, they are far more receptive than if they if you just say, right, we've got to cut X amount of people. This is what we're doing. This is when we're going to do it. You'll get a letter to say whether or not you're in scope or not. And then we'll say whether or not your job is still there. You know, that type of thing just isn't helpful. It doesn't help people. I agree. (laughs) But I've also worked in organisations where things have moved very quickly. And sometimes there's not the luxury to have those conversations. And I have, you know, I've done going from a private company to a public company. I've done a couple of M&As. And that's a lot of the work that I do is help people with growth and all the change and all that kind of stuff. And I always say you've got to be clear what is a conversation or a discussion and what's a decision. And I think that's sometimes where we blur the lines because There's something uncomfortable about that sometimes for leaders, in my experience, in terms of being able to say, look, this is what we're doing. And part of that comes from the way society has evolved and changed. And there's a lot more kind of activist nature in things now. But I always say you've got to be very clear. Have you decided this? And therefore, what is the conversation around it? Or is this a discussion to come to a decision? And they are very distinct things. And we need to be very clear about those when we're going through any kind of change or anything. The other thing is, that I'm not always a fan of of asking and listening and having conversations because sometimes there is a need for decisions to be made that are linked to kind of M&As and and things like that or huge changes. And and COVID has made organisations work very quickly on some very tough decisions over the last 18 months that they wouldn't have had time to have had conversations outside of the legal requirement of having, you know, consultations and the things that are needed. But to Trudy's point, it's being very specific. If we're coming in and having this conversation and listening, you know, to what end and dialogue is important for us to have that relationship and have that conversation. I've worked with a lot of leaders who will say, I'm not interested in listening. I just want to crack on and get the work done. To quote an old CEO, this isn't a social club. We're running a business. I can't listen to everybody. And I always talk about, you know, things where if there was a recipe to make something in a previous role, you know, this is how you make a ham and cheese baguette. It's not really up for discussion how we do that. There's certain points in the year where you might listen and and debate recipes, but this is how you do it. So, again, it's just being very clear. And I think sometimes we're not clear about that in change. And that means people feel like everything's up for discussion or conversation or nothing is. So that would probably be my advice to people that are going through something is be really clear what's on the table for a discussion, what's a decision. And also, I think there is something about bringing expertise forward. If you're listening to this and you're a communicator, you know, I've stepped into organisations that are going through an M&A and part of my role was to bring that together as a comms director. 
And I remember arriving and seeing the work that was being done to bring these different companies together around the values and the creative approach. And I, I was, you know, not shy in being slightly concerned, I shall say, about the approach they decided to take because it was so culturally linked to one side rather than the two. And it, it, this was a true merger. So there was no one really acquiring someone else. It was a true merger. And I was just baffled that they hadn't considered actually the two different cultures coming together what that meant and how you needed to communicate in a way that was appropriate for both. And those were the things that were missing. So whilst it might feel like there's not the opportunity to listen or to have that conversation, there are opportunities to shape things as you're looking at the culture and how you go forwards. Now, in that instance, people weren't necessarily talked to about what those were, but how that was done and the narrative and everything around it, that's up to the communicator and the HR team and the leadership team to be culturally aware enough to know what's appropriate and what's right for that situation I do agree kind of Jenny <laughs> with your uh, with, with your approach I do, do. <laughs> kind of kind of I do think you're right I do think there are certain things in an organization where you just have to make a decision based on your knowledge and experience and your expertise right otherwise you would never get anything done in a business mm-hmm. however it is important to have a balance where you're not stifling innovation So you talked about the ham and cheese baguette as an example. If you're a colleague who's putting these ham and cheese baguettes together every single day and you see an opportunity to save, I don't know, 50p on doing something different with the cheese now that's such a random (laughs) random (laughs) I love this example. So say, you know, you're doing it every single day and you're like, do you know what? I can probably save 50p here. You know, if we grated the cheese rather than sliced the cheese. For example, I would hope that organisations have some sort of platform or some sort of something. This is where two-way communications comes in really handy. Yeah, but there was, like I said, that there were other mechanisms, like there were certain points throughout the year where you could have that discussion, but it's not like a constant stream of here's some feedback, because you wouldn't be able to run a business like that. But then hopefully the colleagues in that business understood that they are still being heard. So they know, this is what I mean about balance, right? So they know that this is the way we're going to be doing it because we've done the research, we've got the evidence, here's the data that demonstrates that this cheese and hamburger, this is the best way to put it together based on feedback. We've had. It has to be sliced. It has to be rated. sliced. It has to have this many grams of ham because this is the research that the customers <laughs> have given us, right? So you're sharing... I'm really hungry now. Well, <laughs> because you're sharing the why and this is the key. Yeah. So anything that you do, and I've worked on a, I worked on two merger and acquisitions and it's been stressful to say the very least because you're right, the cultural thing is just... You know, people don't actually, and it surprises me, it does take my breath away when people don't think about the different cultures coming together. Mm-hmm. And then people are surprised why, you know, there's been this clash and fallout between folks and there's not been any proper explanation. Mainly down to the fact that they haven't done the listening that they're meant to have done in the first place or communicated the why. So we are doing this because of X, Y, and Z. And yeah. we say to leaders, you know, in the organisation I worked in is that, You may not be able to contribute to the change, and that's okay because decisions have been made and they've been made based on data and insight that the organisation has had from a senior level. But you can always ask, how are you doing? Do you understand what I'm saying? Is there anything that's concerning you? Let me hear what you have to say to me. Take that feedback on board and reassure them by the data and information that they've got. So somebody may turn around and go, I honestly think that grated cheese is the best thing for a baguette. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm going I'm, I'm carrying on with the ham and cheese thing I honestly think that grated cheese is the best thing you know to their supervisor their supervisor should be able to say I'm not you know 
not say, I should say, they shouldn't say, I'm not interested in, in your views. This is what we told HQ, just crack on. Because I just kind of, you know, but if they turn around and gone, do you know what? I understand. I understand why you might think that. However, you know, we've done the research, we've got customer feedback, and customers have told us that sliced cheese is much better for them. But I think that's such a rose-tinted view on how organisations should work because, because <laughs> oh, we're like properly disagreeing today. Yeah. Because... Like if I think about the reality of that world, the line managers were so much of it comes down to line managers' communication skills, and we all know that that's a whole other, yeah. whole other episode in a previous season. I mean, we're getting very specific in the ham and cheese baguette department, <laughs> but they're working on shifts, so they won't really see their managers. You know, the opportunity to have that conversation is probably rare, but there needs to be a mechanism to do it. So you're right, yeah. and people need to know why that recipe is that recipe. But I honestly can't imagine somebody going back and saying, oh, well, it's because of the research this, because I don't think they would know enough of that. I think it's almost implied in a lot of the communication that goes through internally that this is the way we're doing it. And there's, you know, research yeah, well into this. I get it. And I know it's a very rose-tinted view, but my kind of think is why not, though? These are people who are on the front line every single day putting together this baguette every single day, right? And they're going to be selling to the customers when the customer turns up. Like, this is why. I know we are going right into the ham and baguette <laughs> world right now. <laughs> but you can apply it to anything, which is a customer. And, and I suppose I'm specifically talking yeah. about customer-facing roles here. But any kind of role that's service or product-led, you need your employees to be advocates for the brand that you're promoting, selling, whatever. If they don't believe in this brand and they're just being told like a machine, and this is a feedback we always got, from the yeah. organisation I worked in, people treat me like a robot. People don't treat me like I'm a person. Yeah. Nobody cares. My supervisor's too busy, right? My yeah. supervisor's too busy. They're on shifts. They're doing this, doing that. I don't know why I'm being told to push this product over this product. But, I, you know, yes. yeah, you know, that's fair. all that kind of stuff. And I just think that if we just got rid of all the goth that distracts us, that's not necessary for it. This is the other thing. Right? Now we're getting into a proper thing. <laughs> segmentation of comms right this is the thing which yeah. is why I think if you segment your comms in your business not everybody needs to know every single thing about the business you can personalize the communications relevant to the people who work in that business so they get the information that's relevant to them so if you're a supervisor working in a sandwich shop you may want an overview of the EBITDA and whatever not just to make sure you've got a job next year but your most important piece of information may be what are the sales in that shop doing? What are the best selling products and what yeah. do we need to push? And making it quite specific to them. And I just think as communicators and as business leaders, we can sometimes convince ourselves that what's the point or I'm too busy or it's a distraction and it doesn't matter anywhere. I just need people to do the job, the minimum wage, who cares? You know, you kind of get to that point. And I do think yeah. that's why certain organisations and certain industries do have challenges with retaining staff and colleagues you know, you become so disillusioned with what happiness and what, you know, what is fulfillment, sorry, in this organisation that we just, we do treat people like the sandwich makers, for example, as an asset, right? Yeah. Just put the blooming baguette together, get it to the customer. Why don't we, I don't care. make sure it's sliced. I'm not interested in the grey. But so much of this, I think, comes back to line managers. Yeah. All of this, you know, the listening, everything. I wrote it down earlier as we were talking that the listening, the feedback, the dialogue, there's only so much you can do as a leadership team. So much of it relies on your line managers, your shift managers, you know, the people in that store, all of that it comes down to the communication skills of your supervisors and your leadership. Yeah, team. but you also need to have your leaders having a desire to do that. 
Because yes. again, if your line managers are having a similar experience to your on the ground staff, where they're not being listened to, they're not being told anything, then they're going to behave exactly the same way to their people. So it really does. I know we say line managers do have a huge responsibility, but a really big part of it is the intention of leadership from the outset of, you know, we've made the decisions, we can't tell anybody what's the point. And to me, it cannot be that attitude that you take forward. And a bigger part of it is that they should be shaping a culture that kind of opens up the whole balance thing. So the only way you get that balance where people feel listened to, feel heard throughout the whole time that they're there is through building a whole culture of that kind of listening. Mm -hmm. So when it does come a time when there's something difficult, like an M&A, we trust our leadership. I know that my leader is going to come and transparently explain what's going on. I know it's not going to be comfortable. It's going to be difficult because decisions have to be made because this is a business. It doesn't mean that you just ignore how people's experiencing it. Agreed. Wow, well, that was really, now we get into top two. So I've got a great <laughs> title for this episode, by the way. But anyway, you can, you can guess what's going to feature in this. But now we're going to go into top tips and advice. So, I mean, it's quite clear just by this discussion the three of us have had. We've all got different opinions, which is brilliant, but we've also had different experiences. So to those people who are listening today, what is one or two top tips that you think they should really pay attention to if they are struggling with listening within their organisation? So, Jenny. So I've got three and I will keep them short and sweet. So the first one is that we tend to listen to respond and not to understand. And that's our failing. Yeah. Like the number of people I talk to and they'll just be going, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I'm like, you're not actually listening <laughs> to me at all. <laughs> it doesn't happen often. So we have to be mindful of that. We have to listen to, to really understand. The second is line managers, which we touched on a bit on the whole ham and cheese baguette gate, because... The research that I did around the role of line managers showed a disconnect between how much autonomy they had in their role in terms of what they could actually do in terms of budget. And this has brought that to the fore for me in terms of a line manager can listen, but actually if they can't do anything, that's not particularly helpful. And we get ourselves into that performative space again. So that's my second one. And then my third one is around timing being so important. So we talked a bit about people being distracted and distraction coming through a bit earlier, but the timing of when you want to listen to somebody or when you want to ask questions is important, not just because of the distractions, but because you should know your people, you know, and we should know our people around us, not just at work, but know the right time to ask that question or have that conversation or to sit in a room and do that. You know, you should know people well enough to know the importance of timing. And I mean, I have it even with my husband. I know not to ask him loads of questions in the morning because that's not, <laughs> that's not, you know, whereas I'm like, woo, 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 first thing. <laughs> Not, not his jam so I know that and that works but you have to know have those conversations and, and that to me plays out in every aspect of life if you want to listen have conversations just think about timing so they're my three Ab, Trudy yeah mine I'm going to try and do the same thing and have three really short ones so one is about having a plan so if you are going to do surveys if that's going to be your kind of entry point to listening to your people have a plan, plan out what you're going to do with that data. If you don't know, and this is the second one, get some advice, get some expert advice on how to handle this aspect of things in terms of listening, in terms of taking that and interpreting it. You know, we've got three of us here who we know had to deal with it so many times through coaching and through doing our communications consulting. So it's literally 
speak to somebody who can give you a steer on how to handle that data and how to do surveys properly. And then the other thing is, remember, by not listening, you can be stifling innovation. Even in the midst of an M&A, you might be surprised to know that a member of staff would have an idea or a thought as to how something could be enhanced or fixed simply because they were included, they were listened to, they were explained to in some way, and they have a thought or an idea as to how something could be done. Maybe maybe the decision is made and it, you know, you've got to stick to the decision, but it gives a way of actually including people and actually helping you through that particular change. That's me. Great. Um, I don't really have anything else to add to those six because I think they're brilliant. But what I do want to say is be quite intentional with what you are listening to. And this kind of balances Jennings and Trudy's top tips in terms of, you know, Jenny is 100% spot on. I do think that we sometimes don't listen because we're too busy coming up with a response (laughs) already. If you know what I mean? So, you know, you're listening, you know, and I've been doing a lot of research in productive disagreement recently because it's something that I've, it really fascinates me. And I'll share that, and I've shared it in a previous podcast episode, but I'll, I'll reshare the link. But it is important to not enter a, a conversation or a listening conversation with your thoughts overtaking that conversation because you believe that's the right way. It's really important to allow people to have that conversation and then productively together come up with a solution for the greater purpose. So if it is a merger and acquisition, if it is about grated cheese and a baguette or a sliced cheese and a baguette, <laughs> like it's important that you are talking and allowing people to explore their ideas, right? And be heard. Because nobody, I'll be surprised if there's any human on this planet that doesn't like to be heard. You know, people just want their views heard, whether you agree with them or don't agree with them, whether you're going to take action with them or not. You do want that opportunity to have a voice. And I think as leaders in the businesses that we work and support, we should be encouraging that more. And again, lean into those challenging, and Jenny implied it before, but lean into those uncomfortable conversations. And as uncomfortable as it will be for you, and even for the person who has to listen to what you have to say, lean into it because nobody wants to live in a world of assumptions or ignorance. So it's really important that you do that. And data and insight, which Trudy mentioned, I 100% agree that back up your information and your why with data and insight, because that will help the person understand why you've made that decision, not just because, you know, you decided on a whim, you know, some people may do, but most folks, I think, reasonable folks make decisions based on information that they've gathered and research that they've done. But often we forget to share that with our teams. And we just make the assumption that they will know or they'll understand or they'll guess it by some random comms that's gone their way. (laughs) And it's not often that clear. So just be cautious of that. But yeah, I think that was a really good conversation. Now, all I can think about is ham and baguette and I'm a vegetarian. I know. (laughs) You know, like different types of cheese, because that would be another part of the That would be good. I'm also trying to work out who grates cheese in a sandwich. I do. That's because right. I would always That's slice right. it. Oh, I agree. I agree. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that is wrong. Wow. No, no we'd never. Really? At the very, oh. at the very, kind. if I was being a bit adventurous, I would slice it with a potato peeler. But I never just slice with a knife. I always great. Adventurous. I love it. <laughs> Tell us. Forget about the listening chat. Tell us if you're great or slice your more about us how to sign up to our comms retreat or to listen to past episodes go to calmedgedrebels.com don't forget to rate and subscribe and thanks for listening